0: This is Real Talk, the customer insights show with Jen Vogel, a top rated live stream and podcast in the market research and insights industry. We stream live on LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube, and you can listen on all major podcast channels. Join Jen and her guests for a weekly discussion around topics that will help you understand your customers better. Real Talk is presented to you by Vox Pop Me, the leader in video research, and ranked number one in qualitative research by Grit two years running. Here's today's conversation. Hello, insights professionals, marketers, and everyone who wants to understand their customers better. I'm your host, Jen Vogel. Creating what customers want is certainly something all of us are after, but how do we create the habits to continuously understand what works, what doesn't, and course correct if we're wrong? I'm really excited to discuss the topic with Teresa Torres, author of the number one bestseller, Continuous Discovery Habits. Welcome to the show, Teresa.
1: Thanks, Jen. I'm excited to be here.
0: Really excited to have you. I know our team is also, this book is one of the books that has floated through our entire product team and marketing team of, you know, people who are really, you know, connected with and resonated with what you were talking about. So I'm excited to dig into it today. Yeah, great. So to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the concept, the topic of the book, and really like why you wrote it?
1: Yeah, it really happened organically. Um, Over the course of my career, working both as a designer and a product manager over different years, um, one of the things that I saw was that uh, most teams just aren't spending enough time with their customers. Um, They're not testing their ideas. Uh, It's really easy to fall into the trap of like, well, we know our industry. We know our space. Let's just figure out what to build and go build it. Uh, And so I hit a point where I realized that this was a real problem to solve. I started coaching teams. Uh, teaching them how to engage with their customers more often, build stronger feedback loops, really just sort of test their core assumptions before they build. And then after about uh, seven or eight years coaching teams, I realized that the material that I had created was having a really big impact, and I just wanted to get it into more people's hands. And so that's what led to the book.
0: That's awesome. And I think it's, you know, we... I've worked a majority of my career as a marketer in the market research space. And so, working with market researchers, it's not necessarily a new concept, but as you kind of float out into the broader marketing and product communities, it is kind of a new concept to be talking to customers as often as we are, which is great to see. But it's so interesting how, um, you know, maybe different segments of companies are closer to or more disconnected from customers? Did you see that a lot also?
1: Yeah, I think especially larger, as companies grow, they start to invest in kind of what I call centralized research teams. So that could be a user research team, a market research team, a business intelligence team. Like typically as companies grow, they start to invest in research, which is great. The -hmm. challenge is that research is really fundamentally different from what we talk about with Discovery. So with Discovery, product teams, really work on a very different cadence than most of the rest of the business. They're really pushing to ship value to customers week over week. And that's a cadence that's a lot faster turnaround time than most of the rest of the company. And so they need to have really fast feedback loops for getting answers to really their daily questions. Whereas in my experience, like market research teams, business intelligence teams, they tend to have the luxury of working on a little bit longer horizon, maybe they're running a study that lasts a few weeks or even a month or two, um, whereas that cadence just doesn't work for product teams. And so while I think it's all research, I think the big difference with discovery is how do we do just enough research to get us fast answers to what we're facing on a daily basis?
0: Mm, That's such an interesting distinction. And uh, I think probably something that traditional researchers can learn from some of this continuous discovery and be able to speed up, speed that up a little bit. And, um, you know, because you're right, there are times there are certain projects that have researchers have the luxury of having a few weeks or a few months and others that there's like this increased pressure to get answers a lot more quickly. And it's very uncomfortable. Um, so this, this is something that could be you know, I think there's a lot of crossover, a lot that teams can learn from each other. Um, so, I mean, you just you just touched on it, but I'll just ask you to define it again. What is continuous discovery?
1: Yeah, so I define it in the book as at a minimum weekly, weekly touch points with customers. So engaging with your customers every single week uh, by the team building the product. So not relying on somebody else's research, but the team that's building the product able to engage with customers directly. And then what they're doing is they're conducting small research activities that are helping them pursue an outcome. And so that's another kind of key difference for product teams. Oftentimes our our more centralized research teams are doing foundational research. So they're um, trying to understand market trends. They're trying to understand maybe an ideal customer profile. These are really great research projects that we should be doing. But for product teams, Part of what's driving this weekly cadence is we usually have these very aggressive goals or outcomes that we're trying to move. And so a lot of discovery is how do we make sure that our research activities are in service of that? Because we're not researchers, right? We're not, our job isn't just to do research, it's to drive these outcomes. So um, from the book, it's at a minimum, mm-hmm. we can touch points with customers by the team building the product where they're conducting small research activities in pursuit of a desired product outcome.
0: Mm. And h- how exactly do you see that actually coming into play in a day-to-day? Like, is it just you and I having this conversation? Are there other methods that have worked well? Um, you know, how are teams actually doing it?
1: Yeah. So the framework that I teach starts with an outcome. So it assumes that a product team is being tasked with moving some number, uh, which is different from what we've historic- how we've historically been managed right? We used to have a product team. Here's a fixed roadmap. Deliver these features by this fixed date. There's not a lot of room for discovery in that model. So we're recognizing we can't predict the future. Let's start with an outcome. Here's the impact we need your work to have. And then from there, I think there's two core discovery activities. The first is how do we discover unmet customer needs, pain points, and desires, which I collectively call opportunities. So that's where we're creating customer value. Um, And I think the The key activity for that is interviewing. So I wanna see a team interviewing week over week with the purpose of finding unmet needs, pain points and desires. And then the second key activity is how do we discover solutions and how do we evaluate our different ideas? Um, And that's where I wanna see teams assumption testing where they're taking different ideas and breaking them down into their underlying assumptions and then rapidly testing, are those assumptions valid? And so I think at a high level, A good continuous discovery team is interviewing week over week to discover opportunities and assumption testing week over week to evaluate solutions.
0: Mm, That's really interesting and, you know, really something that, um, you know, I've experienced firsthand just with the way companies do research and this, this approach of like first figuring out what the unmet need is, like it is very customer centric, just in its approach. And that's really key because I get surveys all the time for this or that or whatever product you have. Right. And it's like, uh, it's very clear that the company who's written that survey in a lot of cases is interested in their outcome and their unmet need, not mine. Right. Yeah. Not figuring out what's, you know, how they can solve my problems better. And so this is a very, um, it's very, a customer centric approach to, you know, don't start with the solution. Don't start with like validating, hey, we've got some great idea. We want you to, we want to know if you're going to buy, but actually like what's, you know, how can we help solve, solve problems for you in a better way?
1: Yeah, this, it, you know, it sounds obvious, like, yeah, we should solve customer problems, but it's actually a lot harder in practice. Mm-hmm. Our brains are wired to think in solutions. Solutions are really tangible. It's We're not that great at abstract thinking, right? So when we talk about like, oh, well, this customer has this problem that we should solve, it's really hard to think about in the abstract. And so we want to jump to a solution. The challenge is if we have multiple people working on that solution, which we almost always do, they're all interpreting that problem slightly differently, which means we're all gonna disagree on what the solution might be. And so there is this work that has to be done to truly understand what is it that this customer needs? How are we framing that? Are we all aligned on that framing? Does that framing what we're, match what we're actually hearing from the customer? So there's this whole set of work around opportunity framing that a lot of teams skip over and I think it's why we end up um, developing solutions that miss the mark. So we put it in front of a customer and they're like I don't know why I would use this and we say oh well because we're trying to solve this problem for you and they're like well that's not my problem. I have a slightly different problem and so this solution doesn't really meet my need. And so I think what's good is as an industry we're starting to recognize that these are equally important activities. It's not just about finding the right solution, it's about first identifying the most important needs to address And then making sure that we do the work to frame them and really understand them and align with our customers. And then looking at how do we develop the right solution for that need.
0: Totally, and something you just touched on, like, you know, we're gonna get it wrong so often, right? Especially as we're trying to make, you know, we always start with some sort of hypothesis. We think this is what people are experiencing. It might be an educated hypothesis based on some data, but actually talking to people and hearing someone say, well, I'm trying to solve a different problem. It's important to identify that as early as you can, so you're not way down the solution roadmap solving a problem that actually people don't have. And even if you did kind of have a pretty data-driven and educated hypothesis, like you're gonna find that out eventually that you're you're thinking about it in the wrong way. You might as well yeah. do that first.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Like what a lot of teams do is they find out after they've released it, and there's just sort of this lukewarm response that they built the wrong thing. And so one of the goals of discovery is how do we learn that as quickly as possible? Um, the other thing too is just recognizing that ideas are cheap. We can have a hundred ideas in a day, and mm-hmm. so. Um, Discovery also helps us like distance ourselves a little bit from the idea itself um, so that we really can be more customer centric. And then it really becomes more like a puzzle. How do we match the right solution to to, to the given need rather than um, really falling into the trap of like, well, this is my favorite idea. We have to do it this way.
0: Mm. Oh God, that's so hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially when you have a lot of really smart people with good ideas, like that's, it's Actually, it makes me very sad to hear you say ideas are cheap, but it's so true. Like, there I are actually ideas.
1: I think this like abundance mindset when it comes to ideas is so critical because there are a lot of good ideas. And so, the way I frame it is that there's an infinite amount of good ideas. So, it doesn't mean that every time you have a good idea, you should build that thing, right? That's just the beginning. There's so much more work to do. Um, and I think thinking about it that way is like, okay, the value is not the good idea. The value is matching a good idea, which there are many of, to the right need, pain point, or desire. Because it's really when those things match up that we create value for a customer.
0: Yeah, that is so, that's so incredibly powerful. And you've just, you've just very quickly shifted me from sad to actually that <laughs> is, you know, when you position it that way, it's, there's infinite possibilities it, just because you don't build that one great idea doesn't mean there's not going to be an even better one down the road and that. That's where the excitement comes in when you when you've actually solved the problem. The idea you have solves that problem and makes that connection. There's something really powerful there. Um, now, one of the things you mentioned is that the like this continuous discovery has to be done by the people building the things, right? Do you find that there's ever challenges in connecting those two things? Because oftentimes there are customer customer facing teams that are in place, right? Around yeah. or next to or alongside those people building the thing. So how do you find that getting that access?
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons why this is so important. So first of all, it's just the cadence in which product teams work. So I get a lot of pushback from user researchers that, are, that they think that I'm saying um, product managers and designers and engineers can do the job of a user researcher. So I'm gonna say right away, that is not what I'm saying. Companies do need project-based research. And I think that we do need centralized research teams, whether you're user researchers or market researchers or business intelligence folks, we do need that research. I think of that research more as like long horizon foundational research. Now long horizon doesn't have to be a really long horizon. In a product to a product team, a month is a long horizon. Right, so if you're designing a diary study that's gonna take six weeks to execute, that is long horizon research relative to a product team. So the first thing is the reason why I think these teams need to be doing the research themselves is because it's really hard for a centralized team to support multiple product teams that are working on a daily cadence, right? I wanna empower a team that has a teeny tiny question today to get an answer to that question by tomorrow. And when we're relying on an outside team to help us with that, that team becomes a bottleneck. It just slows us down. Now, is the research that I'm doing as a product team to get an answer tomorrow the same as the research that my user researchers are doing? Absolutely not, right? We're going to see lower reliability. We're going to see lower validity. Does it mean it's a waste of time? No, because some feedback is always better than no feedback. So I think the first thing is recognizing that, like, Research is a spectrum and we can look at quality of research, both from a reliability and a validity standpoint, and different types of questions need different quality of research. And so it's really easy to take this extreme view of like, for not doing perfect research, there's no value in it. I would, if we're gonna take that extreme view, I'm gonna go even more extreme and say, okay, well, nobody in industry is doing valid research because We're not doing double-blind controlled randomized studies that, and then waiting 10 years and doing a meta-analysis before we learn anything, right? So like, it really is a spectrum and I really believe um, any feedback is better than no feedback. And I also believe we can teach product teams how to improve the reliability and the validity of their research without them having to become expert researchers. And I don't mean that to take away anything from professional researchers the reality is we need both
0: oh my gosh this is such a powerful conversation right now <laughs> i have this conversation a lot often with researchers and there is there are kind of like two schools of thought there are um market researchers user researchers out there who are really proponents of democratizing research skills and really putting because again getting direct access to customers, customer needs is critical to kind of infiltrate throughout the business. And there are some people in the insights industry who really believe that to be true and others who have a fear of exactly what you're talking about, you know, of it, it's not high quality enough to make the right decisions, or it's not, you know, there, there's a, a threat on my job. I love exactly. what you said, like, we're not saying here that, Product folks or marketing folks can do the job of a centralized research team. It's just that they, any connection with the customer is going to help them do their job better. And anyone who's kind of encouraging this customer closeness is just going to have a more customer centric business that is serving the customer needs. Like, I don't think I've ever had this conversation with somebody from the perspective of the product person wanting to talk directly to the customer as opposed to the insights teams who are maybe feeling a little nervous about opening that up, but you've just summarized it in such a beautiful way that like why it's so important and, and also how it's different. I think that's really critical.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, we could look at this really practically. Like if I'm on a product team and I'm working on a solution, I have a million research questions Right? I wanna know, is this the right interface widget for this particular task on this one screen in this little tiny area? If I have to rely on a centralized user research team or any centralized team to get that answer, that means every single decision that I make, I'm dependent on a third party. Mm-hmm. Like we can't work that way, that's just not feasible. The second reason why I think it's really important that teams do some of their own research is that we know when people are involved in the design and execution of research, the research becomes more believable for them and it also becomes more actionable. And we see this a lot where centralized user research teams hand off a research report to a product team. They read it and they say, this does not jive with my experience talking to a customer and they ignore it, Mm. right? Whereas what we need is we need both. We need that research from that centralized team And we need that product team engaging with customers. So they're also hearing it firsthand. It makes that foundational research more believable and more actionable. And it allows that product team to get feedback on every little teeny tiny decision that they're making, which is where we know products succeed and fail on those little decisions.
0: That's so true. Yeah. Those like little minor friction points that just like fixing the smallest thing makes such a a huge difference, um, especially in tech products, but um, in really all products. Okay. That was a really great detour, but let's, we'll get back on topic today. This is, um, this is such a great conversation. Um, What are some of the habits that people have to learn to kind of think about this continuous discovery?
1: Yeah, it starts with an outcome mindset. So it starts with um, really retraining your brain to not jump to a solution and first say, what's the value we need to create for our business? So we're gonna measure that with an outcome. Second, we're gonna start to build on our customer centricity mindset and say, okay, how do we take the time to explore the opportunity space, make sure that we really understand our customers' needs, pain points and desires before we jump into solutioning. And so from a habit standpoint, I wanna see teams um, starting with an outcome that's typically happening on a quarterly basis. Some companies extend that timeline, I think that's fine. Um, and then interviewing every week. Interviewing is helping us to um, discover the opportunity space. We're assumption ev- assumption testing every week to help us evaluate solutions. And then there's a number of other habits that support those activities. So one thing I like to see teams do is visualize what they already know through experience mapping, Um, I have a visual called Opportunity Solution Tree that helps align all these activities. Um, Story mapping is another way to visualize your thinking. Um, When we're working on teams, it's really hard to stay aligned and make sure that we're all working together. And uh, visualizing your thinking really helps with that. Um, There's a number of other sort of just support things that help, like we have to be able to see our own assumptions. So how do we generate the assumptions that our ideas are dependent upon? I think in the book, there's. 13, I think 13 different habits, um, but they all structure around um, this idea of starting with an outcome, discovering opportunities, and then discovering solutions. Mm.
0: And I will just make a plug for the visualizations, the opportunity, I'm going to say it wrong now, opportunity decision tree. Is that what opportunity
1: is? solution tree. Promotion it's a terrible tree. name. You can say oh, it wrong. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's totally fine. Opportunity Solutions Tree. Someone, um, when the book was first floating around our team I was like, hey, you you should use this for this thing. And I was like, oh, this is so brilliant. It's like it, actually, you know, I think we're we're so accustomed to documenting stuff, right? Like documenting decisions that are being made and, you know, doing that in a more visual way. First of all, it helps to figure out exactly like kind of distill down, you know, write that shorter letter as opposed to all the details that have gone into a decision, um, but also makes it so much easier to share with the teams. Like none of this is happening in a silo, even if, you know, the product team might be building and talking to the customers and doing the discovery and, you know, thinking about the outcomes. There's always other people that are involved and to have something visual to help plan it, but also communicate what your thinking is and what you've kind of come up with is just... it. It, it makes it that much easier to say, hey, this is this is where my brain is right now because so much of it does just sort of swirl around in there. And it's tough to communicate just in, in words.
1: Yeah, we actually on Product Talk just in a couple, I think this Wednesday, we have a blog post coming out that's all about using visuals and how they help. And it it's based on this idea of like, they help us do our work, they help us communicate our work and they help us archive our work. So just briefly, hmm. what I mean by that is When we're working as a team and we're trying to figure out what to build, we're starting with like, what do we hear in our interviews? That's where opportunity mapping, so the opportunity space on an opportunity solution tree really helps because we're trying to keep in our head everything we heard. And so by just putting it down on paper, we're relieving our working memory, which is freeing up cognitive energy to process those things instead of just remembering those things. Um, When we're working as a team, it's helping us align because using visuals is a lot more concrete than language. Language tends to be vague, um, but then it, you're right. You're spot on. It also helps us communicate with people outside of our team. Here's what we're learning. Here's how we're making decisions. Here's where we are in the overall process. And then after the fact, we can use those exact same visuals to archive our work and to remind ourselves where we've been, what we've explored and what decisions we've made.
0: Mm. Yeah, this is, you know, it's all of the benefits are there. And I think where I struggle is the time it takes, right? Like it's in theory takes less time to just let it swirl around there than to actually spend the time documenting it. But as you're just like freeing up that mental headspace to be able to focus on other work or that next project or executing the plan that you put in place is so valuable. Um, you know, how do you balance some of the, like, the strategies, the habits, and you know, really the t- what may sound like extra steps that's sort of hard to wrap your head around with you know, the, the doing the work and kind of delivering that value.
1: Yeah, this is where I think continuous discovery has a huge advantage over our old sort of project-based research methods. So what did product teams used to do? Like maybe once a quarter, they would interview half a dozen to a dozen customers, We'd probably do some like affinity mapping exercise looking for themes. We'd gather all that together and put together a research deck summarizing our findings. That's a big project, it takes weeks, um, which is why we only did it occasionally. When you interview continuously, you can interview in as little as 30 minutes a week, maybe spend another 15 to 20 minutes synthesizing um, what you learned from that interview. So we're at an hour a week. Um, to just continuously interview and synthesize what you learned. Every three or four interviews, I recommend you take some time and update your opportunity map. That might be an hour, so let's say an hour a month. So now we have an hour a week plus an hour a month. And we're, that's all the work that we're doing to get a really rich understanding of the opportunity space. Now, as we move into solutioning, there's a lot of work go, like, that's involved with breaking solutions down into underlying assumptions and running assumption tests. But the reason why I don't actually count that as extra time is that as soon as we start evaluating solutions, this is where the lines between discovery and delivery start to be blurred. We often build stuff to test assumptions and then I can't really tell you anymore where discovery stopped and delivery started. And so when you get really good at assumption testing, it doesn't become extra work. It just becomes the way you work. Um, And that's a little bit hard to like, understand until you start to see it in practice but really for like a fully ramped up continuous discovery team the only thing they're doing extra is they're doing that one hour a week to interview and synthesize what they learned and then that hour a month to keep their opportunity map current everything else just becomes the way we build products
0: that doesn't sound so bad (laughs) when you position it that way Um, but i think that i mean it's the word habit right it's just being like part of your day to day, the way you're thinking, you know, I can remember a time where um, we put an objective into one of our committees or teams to have X amount of product conversations per month, I think it was like eight per month or something. So, you know, it's not that much more than what you're describing. But the seeing the goal, after not having something so consistent like that, like felt very overwhelming for the team, like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to schedule? this many conversations with customers, but eventually it just becomes habit and it doesn't feel like extra. It doesn't feel like you're taking any more time or, um, you know, slowing anything down. I think that becomes some of the question when it's, um, uh, when you're trying to launch something or deliver, I love what you said about, um, you know, delivery and discovery, um, sort of not, You know, not knowing the line between delivery and discovery at that point, because it's just ongoing Um, and being able to uh, to really make it into that habit. Like it doesn't feel so overwhelming at that point. Um, So, yeah, that was a that's a when you break it down that way, it it doesn't sound so overwhelming. And when it becomes habit, then it is um, it is just that it's not uh, not not extra. um, Yeah, I I will.
1: I will share one thing people get confused by is that there is a learning tax, right? So Mm -hmm. if you've never story mapped, if you've never identified assumptions, if you don't have good assumption testing tools in place, if you don't have access to unmoderated testing platforms or one question surveys, right? Like then this stuff gets slow, there's a learning tax. Um, There's things that you have to do to put those tools in place to get comfortable with the tactics. Um, and so don't confuse the learning tax with how long it's going to take once you're fully ramped up.
0: Mm, That's such a good tip. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and you talk about starting small and iterating. I feel like that's a great segue there. Um, you know, what, how does that work for, for most companies? Does that help with the, the learning tax as you, as you mentioned, the starting small?
1: Yeah. So this is, again, a major advantage with continuous, right? We don't have to do everything all at once. And in the book, I actually have a whole chapter about how do I get started with this? Because I don't recommend you adopt everything all at once. I think if you've never talked to a customer, I would focus on building your continuous interviewing habit, right? Just find a customer to talk to. Once you've had your first conversation, you can start to look at how do I make this a habit? How do I do it every week? Um, Once you have the habit is strong, You can start looking at how do I make those conversations more effective by working on your interview skill, learning a little bit about what leads to more reliable feedback in interviewing. Um, And then once you feel like that's really strong, you can start looking at assumption testing. Um, You can start looking at how do I get the right tools in place? How do I learn how to break my solutions down into their underlying assumptions? So you can kind of adopt it piece by piece, which I actually think is way more sustainable than trying to change everything at once.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. There's a, there's a lot in here, maybe for somebody who, like, like you say, if you've never co- talked to a customer before, start there, talk to a customer, maybe just one, <laughs> build that yeah. habit and go from there. But um, yeah, it doesn't have to be an overwhelming task when, you know, I love how you've outlined like how to start and how to build. Um, because I mean, it's so with any habit, right? What is this, what is the saying? Like it takes 90 days to build a, build a habit or something like that and something like seven days to break it. So, you know, devoting that initial time to like building, starting small, taking that time to, to create your, your process or your flow um, and maybe being easy on yourself too, along the way is a, is a good place to start.
1: Yeah. This is where I think, um, People ask, like, is there really a big difference between talking to one customer a week versus four customers once a month? The reason why I think there's a huge difference, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just what we know about habit forming. Going from zero to one is exponentially harder than just maintaining, right? So one a week, we're maintaining the habit. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you talked, if you talked to three customers at the beginning of the month, and they don't talk to them again for the rest of the month, it means you're making 30 days of decisions without any feedback. Where if you talk to them once a week, you're going five working days before you get feedback. Um, Some teams even go more than once a week. They talk to a customer twice a week. Um, Some I know talk to customers every day. That's gonna depend entirely on your industry, who your customers are, how easy it is to reach them. But I think the key concept is make it habitual, so it's easier to keep doing it than to not do it and then think about reducing the cycle time between touch points so it's not about how many customers we're talking to it's about how long we're going between customer touch points
0: mm. yeah that's so that's such a good tip is you know just making it more regular and i think too it speaks to like the speed that the world just changes you know if you go 30 days basing your decisions on conversations you had, you know, 30 days ago, like that actually might not be true anymore, depending on a million things that just happen in the world or happen in your business or happen in your customer's business. And, you know, having more regular conversations, you can actually tap into those shifts that are happening in real time when we're, you know, when the world is a bit uncertain, or all of a sudden, one of your customers has like a major layoff, or, you know, who knows what's happening? Um, You know, things are changing so rapidly. So it's not only that benefit of the habit, but also just keeping a pulse on sort of uh, not assuming things are the same as they were a a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, so I think that pulse is really important. I mean, I could argue just to be devil's advocate that like, are things really changing that much every month? Um, In some industries, the answer is probably yes. In other industries, the answer is probably no. But what I would argue is that when you talk to customers more often, you get feedback on smaller and smaller decisions, right? Mm -hmm. If you only talk to a customer once a month, you're going to save up like your biggest decisions to get feedback on. And that's right. If you're only talking to them once a month, that is what you should be doing. But if you start talking to them every week, you start to get feedback on your medium sized decisions and on your smaller decisions. So it's really this continuous cadence is really about infusing more of our decisions, big and small, with customer feedback. And that's when we start to see overall quality of our products go way up.
0: I love that. I think that's what we all want. So I think that's a good place to leave it there today. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been such a great conversation. Can you tell everybody where they can find you and your book and learn more?
1: Yeah, so if you want to just check out some of my writing, you can go to producttalk.org. We now have over 250 um, long-form articles about product discovery. Um, uh, If you're interested in the book, it's called Continuous Discovery Habits. It's available in paperback, Kindle, EPUB, and Audible, um, and uh, yeah, if you're, if, you've re- if you're familiar with the book, if you've read it, and you want help putting some of the ideas into practice, we have a couple of resources that you can find at producttalk.org. We do have a community um, of practitioners who are working to put the habits into practice, and then we also have a number of online courses designed to help you build skill in some of the different areas.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening in. Join us later this week. We're going to be talking to Wes Bush about product-led growth. See you then.